0: Welcome back. This week, we're going to talk about Maryland in the aftermath of the plundering time and the end of the first English Civil War. You're listening to Rejects and Revolutionaries with Sarah Tinsalvola, a podcast tracing the origins of America from the Tudor era to the 20th century. We left Maryland at a pivotal moment in its history. The plundering time was over. Calvert had resumed his role as governor of Maryland, but just afterward he had died. Maryland was back under Baltimore's authority, but without his brother's able leadership within the colony, and without the Jesuit mission which had formed its heart since the beginning. Fundamentally, this meant that Maryland was now at a crossroads. The plundering time hadn't lasted, but it had effectively devastated the group of people who had led the colony since its founding. There were now at least as many Puritans in the colony as Catholics, whose numbers were now only bolstered by immigrants from Germany, Italy, and France, and the Puritans were ideologically aligned with the people now in charge of England. So the fundamental question that Maryland faced in 1647 was whether its future would align to its original vision or whether the colony would adopt what was essentially a more New England-style approach to everything. The original vision for the colony had been held up by effective leadership and dedication on the part of the colonies elite, if you could call anyone in the Chesapeake elite, and now that elite was pretty much gone. Meanwhile, Maryland's Puritan population was growing stronger. Indentured servants got their freedom, and with that they got land and the ability to vote in the General Assembly, and Puritans had been invited to move from Virginia to Maryland. Meanwhile, Calvert was dead, Cornwallis was in England, never to return, the Jesuit mission was gone, and everything of value in it had been stolen, and within England, Baltimore was having to deal with the fact that the Puritans were, in fact, in control. He had supported the king as much as he could, but there was a new reality, and that was very much a Puritan-dominated one. Calvert as we know, had been devoted to the colony's original vision, and because of this, on his deathbed, he had named Thomas Green as his successor. Green was a perfect choice for governor, especially as Calvert's successor. He had come to Maryland on the Ark and the Dove expedition, and he had frequently held leadership positions in the colony. He had always been competent and tolerant while being devoted to Catholicism and the King's cause in England. In other words, he could easily be expected to continue to govern Maryland exactly as Calvert had, and perhaps even similarly effectively. Former Governor Hill was the first to challenge Green. As soon as he found out that Calvert had died, he resumed his argument that he was in fact the rightful governor of Maryland because the governor should be popularly elected, not appointed by the Lord Proprietor. Green refused his petition, but did say that he hadn't realized Hill hadn't been fully paid for his time as governor, and he said that he would ensure that he was paid if Hill would send an attorney to show how much he was owed. That was a fairly minor challenge, and Hill didn't press the issue. But the issue of payment actually was a big deal. It wasn't just Hill who was owed money. It was also the Virginians who had helped Calvert retake the colony, and who had also manned St. Inigo's Fort to help keep it. Maryland at least needed to be able to feed those soldiers, but in the aftermath of the plundering time, Corn was scarce, and even after Margaret Brent had exhausted Calvert's estate to help pay for everything that needed to be done, the colony didn't even have enough corn to feed those soldiers' subsistence rations. Going hungry in the colony that they had helped to retake was pushing some of the soldiers to consider mutiny. To add to the problems, some of Ingalls' rebels had moved just across the border into Virginia, and they regularly visited Maryland to stir up trouble, and the colony's weakness had also emboldened the Nanticokes and Waikocomicos to start attacking the colonists. The standard form of these attacks would be one to two warriors coming into town pretending to want to trade, something which was easy to do because the colony did have native allies, But then, once in the town, they would kill, plunder, and rape. These attacks became so severe that Green had to adjourn local courts, because having even 12 men on a jury would weaken the colony too much. So Maryland was facing a lot of existential threats at this point, and Green went about trying to stabilize the colony. To stabilize the government, he implemented a series of oaths that colonists needed to take. Because of Ingalls' rebels, Green's government declared that everyone entering the province must take an oath of fidelity to Baltimore's government. Anyone who entertained people who had snuck in without taking the oath would be punished. Furthermore, the general court would not give assistance to or hear the case of anyone who hadn't taken an oath of fealty to Baltimore's government. Essentially, in order to benefit from the government, you had to promise not to try to topple it. To start to stabilize the colony economically, Green then forbade colonists from exporting corn or horses. Corn was the most fundamental need in the Chesapeake, and horses were the greatest extravagance of life there. Most transportation was done via boat, and horses were difficult to take across the Atlantic, but valued. They were the two highest-impact commodities in the area, and both would have to remain within the colony's borders. These were emergency measures, but they kept the colony on stable enough footing to survive through the fall and winter, and by January of 1648, Green's government was able to call an assembly. And what an interesting assembly it was! Seriously, it's always fun to read through the histories of these assemblies and see what the issues were which were so important 400 years ago, but this one really was unique. First. Two people who were not entitled to participate tried to sneak in, but they were caught. This would likely have been related to fights over proprietary versus popular government, though that's not documented. But then, Margaret Brent asked for the right to vote in the Assembly. She was Calvert's attorney, the executrix of his estate, and she argued that this gave her the right to participate in government affairs. This is almost certainly the first time in American history that a woman had asked for the right to vote. She wasn't allowed, obviously, but it's a fascinating story nonetheless, and it came not from a Puritan-style radical, but from a Catholic woman who may well have been a nun. Then the colony got down to business. In order to feed the soldiers at St. Inigo's more than starvation rations, the court was going to have to levy corn from the settlers. Green proposed that they take all corn above what was needed for basic survival from the colonists. They would pay a fair price out of Baltimore's estate, or replace it if the colony was able to import more corn. But colonists would be required to give all that they possibly could the assembly agreed to the plan and determined that the basic subsistence would be two barrels of corn per person. Whatever colonists concealed, they would be fined double. This seemed to pass without much problem, but after this, the Assembly submitted a protest to Governor Green asking that all laws passed at the previous Assembly, the one led by Calvert after he had retaken the province, be repealed. This protest was signed by all members of the Assembly, and it argued that the laws weren't properly enacted because there hadn't been a summons to all members of the colony to allow them to participate. Legally speaking, this was fairly accurate, but practically speaking, this would have been an incredibly difficult thing to do right after retaking the colony. Many of the people who would have wanted to participate would have been in Virginia or England at the time, and the people who were left would have primarily been Ingalls rebels. Certainly, some of the colonists should have been sympathetic to these practical issues. For those who wanted popular government, this was simply a good way to protest Baltimore's proprietary government and anything that didn't respect popular participation enough. That doesn't explain why colonists were united in the petition, though. And to explain that, we have to look to financial issues. Stabilizing the colony had cost money. Lots and lots of money, which nobody really had. Calvert's assembly had saddled colonists with more of the financial burden than they had wanted. Even the most pro baltimore colonists felt that he should be the one responsible for most of the payment, and they could point to laws which would indicate this. Practically speaking, though, this was just impossible. It was too much for anyone to pay. It was practically too much for everyone combined to pay. Maryland had been devastated by two years of rebellion, and this was just another indication of how much damage and how many problems this had caused. From England, Baltimore would read this petition and see discontent and aversion to his rule and the current state of affairs in his colony, though that wasn't the whole story. Green couldn't reverse the decision, simply as a matter of practicality. It was just another challenging situation that Maryland was facing— Green declined to hear their protest, but he did issue a pardon to all citizens for all offenses committed since 1644. It wasn't much, but it was all he could do to placate them. It confirmed the pardon of Ingall's rebels and gave everyone else in the colony a blank slate, too. And that's how Maryland continued for the next year. The May court was adjourned because of Indian threats, and colonists survived as best they could. The political tensions in the colony were still very much there, but for a while, mere survival would have to be the priority. In England, though, Baltimore was having to take serious stock of his circumstances. The king had lost, and the fight was now between the Presbyterians and Independents. At this point, Baltimore seems to have backed the Independents, and this is something that a lot of Catholics actually did. It was a simple calculation. They knew that the Presbyterians wouldn't tolerate Catholics. The Presbyterians' whole goal was to purge the Anglican Church of all vestiges of Catholicism. With the independents, they might not have much chance of being tolerated, but it was at least a possibility. Independents, to rival the Presbyterians, had had to accept more and more radical people to the point where their movement was starting to lack any sort of theological cohesion. It wasn't impossible to imagine that maybe possibly Catholics might be included in that. It was the decision between a definitely not and a probably not, and a fair number of Catholics, Baltimore included, seemed to have gone for the probably not option. Regardless, though, and far more practically, the question was what to do with Maryland. From the beginning, Baltimore had dealt with every imaginable type of Puritan protest to his colony's existence, and now they both controlled England and had crippled Maryland. It had been easy to justify Calvert as governor because Calvert was his brother. He'd led the colony since his founding, and he had done a good job. Now that he wasn't there, though, having a Catholic governor of Maryland would send a much stronger statement that the colony was Catholic in nature, and this was a much more dangerous thing to do in the new political circumstances. The question for Baltimore was what was necessary and what wasn't about his original vision what was just going to cause suspicion or provoke a fight or possibly end Baltimore's control of the colony, and what actually was necessary to keep the peace in Maryland and to protect the people who had gone there for religious protection. At the end of the day, Baltimore decided that having Catholic leadership within the colony just wasn't necessary as long as the laws Protecting Catholics were strong enough, and as long as the government in Maryland was sufficiently submitted to his own authority. He started looking for a Protestant governor and sent a Protestant to serve as Secretary of the Colony, replacing Luger. At this point, Luger disappears from Maryland's historical record entirely. So, it's possible that he either left or died soon after getting the news. His brother was in Barbados, so it's quite possible he went there. But regardless, Baltimore ensured that there was a firm Protestant majority in the Governor's Council, and he kept Green as the Assistant Governor. He also created a new office, Muster Master General, and he appointed the Catholic Captain John Price to that position. To prevent Protestants from using their authority to oppress the Catholics, though, Baltimore severely restricted the powers of the Governor's Council. They could no longer repeal any laws, they couldn't change any officers, they couldn't raise taxes or impose fines for anything except for Baltimore's personal finances, they couldn't impose any oaths, and they couldn't do anything at all regarding religion or tithes. Baltimore wrote oaths that the colonists would have to take, government officials would have to sign an oath of fidelity to his government, and even landowners would have to take such an oath in order to have the right to own land in the colony. It was in this set of legislation and reforms that Maryland's famous Toleration Act was implemented. This was the first act of its kind anywhere. Nowhere else in England or its colonies could actual religious liberty be found, no matter how much people talked about it. The act did include severe punishments for actual blasphemy, and it also fined people 10 shillings each time they insulted another person's religion, and half would be paid directly to the person that they had insulted. If the offending party couldn't pay, they would be publicly whipped and imprisoned, and only released when they had both asked and received the forgiveness of the person they'd insulted. Whereas the enforcing of conscience in matters of religion hath frequently fallen out to be of a dangerous consequence in these commonwealths where it has been practiced, And for the more quiet and peaceable government of this province, and the better to preserve mutual love and unity among the inhabitants, etc., no person or persons whatsoever, within whatsoever, within this province, or the islands, ports, harbors, creeks, or havens thereunto belonging, professing to believe in Jesus Christ, shall from henceforth be be in any ways troubled or molested or discountenanced for or in respect of his or her religion, neither in the free exercise thereof within this province or the islands thereunto belonging, nor in any way compelled to the belief or exercise of any other religion against his or her consent." It was absolutely an embodiment of Maryland's founding principles, and though it was implemented as a somewhat defensive measure, it was also totally unique for its time period. And it was an important document in the evolution of American ideals. And on a more immediate level, this was a piece of legislation which both protected Catholics and encouraged other Englishmen to go to Maryland at a time when an increase in population was necessary for the stabilization of the colony. All that was left was to find a suitable Protestant governor, and this is where the Virginia Puritans come in. William Stone was a Virginian Protestant parliamentarian, and probably a Presbyterian-style Puritan. He was also the epitome of a Virginia success story. He'd been born in Lancashire and first gone to Virginia in 1620 at the age of 14 as an indentured servant. On getting his freedom and land, he had steadily built up a fair amount of wealth and become actively involved in Virginia politics, serving multiple terms in the House of Burgesses. He wrote to Baltimore and asked to be made governor of Maryland, and as an incentive for selecting him, he offered to bring 500 settlers from Virginia to Maryland. He intended to do this by taking Virginia's Puritans to Maryland, something which the Toleration Act would have also encouraged, and this seemed like a good deal to Baltimore. Stone was clearly experienced enough to lead the colony. He knew the Chesapeake and the increased population would greatly help Maryland. It would mean more rent money for his own finances, more people who were able to protect the colony from Nanticoke and Waikikomiko threats, and more people to grow the economy, producing corn and tobacco and trading. Stone wasn't ultimately able to get 500 colonists, but he did bring 300 Puritans with him to join and really establish the settlement at Providence in Anne Arundel County. So Baltimore appointed Stone as the new governor, and to send an even bigger signal to both colonists and English Puritans that things were now different, he created a new seal and wrote 16 new laws for Stone to present at the next assembly one of these was the Toleration Act, and it, like most of them, passed. It was a rebranding and a reset. And that's where we'll stop for today. This was a huge transition for Maryland. It was a decision that the colony couldn't survive or be allowed to survive in the way that it had in the past. And it was an attempt to carve out a new course which would still Honor some of those original founding principles. It was an attempt at a middle ground between the Maryland that Calvert had built and the Maryland that Puritans would have liked to build.